I am joined by Michael Robbins, Chief Investment Officer for Larson Financial, an author of Quantitative Asset Management, Factor Investing, and Machine Learning for Institutional Investing. Michael, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Michael, you just wrote this book about quantitative asset management. So I don't want to talk about, you know, is the Fed going to hike 25 basis points? Is the People's Bank of China is going to do? Corp bank earnings are coming. Forget that. We're talking about principles. We're talking about quantitative research and all the stuff you do. So first, I want to start off. What is the goal of quantitative investing? What do quantitative investors, quants, uh, what do they seek to achieve that non-quants, you know, is not achievable in the in the non-quantitative world? Well, there's a few things, and one of them touches on what you just mentioned. Uh, a lot of what you said is very important, but it may be important in the short term, or a lot of it is just confusing noise. Uh, it, the quantitative analysis helps us focus on long-term trends, on regime shifts, keeps us from being buffeted by this high-frequency data that is very useful to a trader, but to a long-term investor can just bring us off course. And that control of biases, the the ability to focus on what's important, uh, comes from the systemization of it. When we create rules and we research the rules and we make sure that uh, we're we're confident in the thesis that we're making, it's easier to avoid these biases. So that's really, I think, the biggest benefit. Uh, Another really big benefit that is uh, important lately because of AI is the ability to manage many different investments in many different positions, which is very difficult for people to do. But computers can scale easily. And um, so you can have hundreds or thousands of positions in your portfolio and benefit from your skill instead of being distracted by your luck. Uh, Even for great investors, luck pays a big part and uh, if you're a quantitative investor and you have many different bets at the same time, you can reduce that luck and focus on your skill. Thanks, Michael. So what's an example of a bias that a non-quantitative investor would have that's common in the investment world and a, a solution, a framework that a quantitative investor would have? I think you, you said a, a rule or I forget the exact word you said, but let's start on something that perhaps some of our listeners might be familiar with and then we can move on to more advanced stuff later on. Sure. There is a uh, paper that I really like. I think it's called Buying Fast and Selling Slow. And it's based on uh, Kahneman's work, obviously. But what the paper says is that most people, especially most institutional investors, focus on their buying decision. They come up with really interesting things that they want to buy and sell, that they want to buy. And then they try to find money to raise capital to to, uh, to buy those things. They have to sell some assets. And they don't think quite as much about those selling decisions. Uh, It makes a lot of sense in client-facing positions where you want to get some excitement for your new trade and you want to play down uh, getting rid of some of your old trades. But as it turns out, a lot of people leave money on the table. They don't really focus on when to sell, what to sell. They just try to sell something to raise capital for this new, interesting, shiny idea. And uh, they leave as much as 2% of their returns on the table, which is a lot. So that's a a really good example of a bias. And I've talked to many of my portfolio managers over the years, and they confirmed it that they say that's absolutely what they do. Uh, They they focus on the new thing, and they don't think that much about the old thing. In what way are they leaving that 2% on the table? Is it they want to liquidate the stock, and the stock's at 
$56 a, you know, a bid, a $56 and three cents ask, and they just take the market and they don't sort of think about executing it. They don't say, oh, actually, let me sell it in a certain way. In other words, is it just their trade execution is poor or is it they're, they're actually selling assets that they shouldn't be selling for some reason or other? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And uh, I assume it's both, but I think the paper focuses more on the on the latter. And the idea, uh, and it comes up a lot, uh, you shouldn't sell something unless your thesis is violated. Or if you have something that can give you a greater return on capital than that investment. And a lot of people focus on the emotions of it. The market's going up, so I'm going to stick with something. Or they say, oh, the market's gone up a lot already, and I might as well sell it because it may not go up that much anymore. But what you should really do is have a thesis beforehand, game it out so that you don't get uh, influenced by your biases. And then to say, well, has it met my target? Is my thesis still valid? And choose what to buy and sell based on that. And I think that's really what the paper focuses on, that people don't really think that much about whether they should hold on to their positions because they might go up. They just think, I need some money. Let's pick something that's gone up a lot already or something that's lost money and sell those assets. And I want to ask you a question that's Sounds somewhat deceptively simple, but it's an incredibly hard question to ask, which is what causes stocks to go up? So, for example, you know, the airlines, uh, their business w- was decimated in, in March and April of, of 2020, but, you know, and, and they, those stocks crashed. But they didn't get that much better, but they, they rallied huge from, from then on. So you could say, oh, it was, it was liquidity. Uh, maybe it was expectations of profits. And, you know, many other examples. Uh, and for example, the actually airlines, when their businesses started to get better, that's when the stock started to go down. So that correlation between the fundamental performance of the business and the performance of the stock, in some cases, can be uh, not well correlated, at least on the on the right time horizon. So, you know, if I were to ask you that, that super general question, what causes stocks to go up? Yeah, that comes up a lot when I talk to advisors and clients. And uh, two big things come to mind. Uh, one is that the market is really a social construct, right? It's really just what people think. And um, that comes up a lot because of, you know, value investing, right? Value investing has a great story. It's a great narrative. It, it really sells from that standpoint. But there's no real mechanism, no real need for value to work. And everybody wants it to work, I think. Well, many people do. Uh, but it doesn't always work, and it falls out of favor now and again. And the reason why it can't be completely tied to market valuations is because the market's social, and what people think is what drives prices. And that leads into the second concept, which is very important, is that the prices adapt and expect future earnings. And so you don't have to think of whether the price is going to go up or down. You have to think of whether it's going to go up or down relative to what everybody else thinks. You've got to outsmart everybody else. And that's the real trick. Something may seem obvious and you may say, oh, this is a great buy. Obviously, these prices are going to go up, but that increase in price is already baked in. And it doesn't matter. What it has to do is go up more than everybody thinks. And that's the real trick. Does value outperform or underperform it? And when in the history of quantitative investing was there a time when they said value investing kind of has to perform and the data shows it out, but it, it hasn't performed for quite some time, right? Or it actually, it probably performed in 2022, 
<laughs> well, it, it comes and goes, but it, it's had a, a tough road. And uh, Rob Arnott, uh, I'm sorry yep. for pronouncing his name wrong, uh, it said it pretty well. He said that you know these factors worked really well when they were first discovered. And now you need a more nuanced uh, approach with a multi-factor model, and you have to really do a lot more analysis. It's, it's not as simple as it used to be. Uh, and a good example is uh, with NVIDIA, right? Everybody thought, well, AI is coming out. They make chips that are great for AI. Their stock should go through the roof. And maybe it should, but people made that mistake in 2001 as well. They thought, well, when the internet was getting really popular, some stocks would do really well, but they were replaced by their competitors who did better. And the same could happen here. So it, it's really about predicting the future in a in addition to what people already expect and uh, expectations can be wrong. Definitely. Expectations can be wrong. Narratives can be wrong. Michael, one narrative that I was thoroughly convinced of, you, you couldn't you know, change my mind about this was that, and it, you know, rationally it makes sense. You're, you're, you'd be very familiar with what I'm talking about. Um, valuations of equities are, reliant upon the risk-free rate, the discount mm -hmm. rate. So sure. uh, stocks have a price to, you know, S&P 500 has a price to earnings ratio of 25. That's like a 4% you know, yield. Uh, if interest rates are at zero, uh, there's a, you know, a 4%, uh, well, and then the 10 years at you know, 2%, there's a 2% equity risk premium. It's a lot more complicated. I'm simplifying it. <laughs> and therefore, if, if the 10 year goes from 2% to 4% or you know, the overnight rate, the Fed raises rates from zero to 5%, that is going to cause mechanically, value, on a valuation perspective, equities, their future cash flows will be worth less. The future is worth less because you can get all this interest now. And that theory has been thoroughly challenged by the very vigorous rally we've had since October, as even as interest rates have exploded higher uh, in, in a very short time period. So what truth is there that to that narrative? Uh, what, what does the history suggest about it? And is it one of those things where, okay, yeah, an average is slightly true, but you, know, you don't bet on it being every time because you can be disappointed, such as you know, the past nine months? Yeah, you, you can't rely on the mechanism to be uh, so precise and so timely. And also, I think a lot of people have a disconnect. Uh, most people haven't lived through a hiking cycle like this, and certainly not through the, the kind of cycles that went into double digits like we had in the past. People still don't understand, I think, how businesses will react and how they'll adapt. Obviously, the, the tech companies, the Silicon Valley startups, it got hit really hard because they were relying on uh, private financing, and uh, that that really got affected by rising rates. Uh, and we saw what happened to the regional banks. And I think people are still confused. And the Fed itself is finding their way. Uh, people like to complain about them, but they're they're as smart as anybody can be. They're not going to make any decisions that are foolish, but it's hard to make these decisions to know when to stop hiking, uh, how, when the economy is going to get hurt. A lot of people seem to think that no matter how much they hike, the economy is going to roll along and not go into recession. It, nobody really knows. And every time is just a little different. And I think that's why there can be a disconnect between market action and, say, the risk-free rate. 
Yeah, to talk about narratives, dominant narrative was, oh, rising rates are good for banks. So if <laughs> from zero percent to two percent is good for banks, then zero percent to five percent must be great for banks. Uh, you know, in in many cases for regional banks, as we, as we know, it hasn't. And another thing is, there's this narrative that uh, uh, Volcker, you know, he went wild on the markets, caused a recession, and I kind of assumed that the stock market performed poorly. But actually, the drawdown was something like high twenties or, or low low thirties drawdown. Whereas the drawdown in the 1970s, when the Fed was perhaps you know not aggressive enough, was was way, way worse. So just to pin, pin you down, Michael, on that answer of you don't, you, it's hard to know about rising rates and, and discount rates and equity risk premia, and uh, you you don't know if equity risk premia are high or low. You know, if they're high, you don't know that they're going down. If they're low, you don't know they're going up. It's disconnected, and things are very strange nowadays with, uh, you know, the unemployment rate and, you know, everything just doesn't seem to be the way it used to be. And, and every time is a little different. So what I like to do when I want to make bets like that is to do things that are more like arbitrages, right? Where you can buy one asset or one asset class and sell another one as tightly as you can to make your thesis reflected in your trade, right? To have the best expression of your trade. Uh, instead of just betting on, say, stocks going up, you can bet on one stock versus another stock or one sector versus another sector and make that trade more tight. And that's a way to insulate yourself from these sorts of things, these disconnects between theory and reality. Tell, tell us about that, because I think it's it, sometimes it has a lot of challenges that we can get, get into, right? It's... It can get very technical. Uh, I started out as an arbitrageur in the early 90s uh, doing basis trades, which were very precise. Uh, to do well, in, in the bond market or, or what? Yeah, yeah, in the treasury market. And, okay. Um, so did you walk us through that? Was it a uh, like long cash bond, short futures? or something? Yeah, that's exactly right. There were three legs to the trade. There was uh, cash futures and the repo financing for the term, right? Uh, but stock trades, pair trades are not that different. So, for instance, uh, we're writing a model now uh, to do better taxless harvesting uh, than the traditional way. And um, so when you identify a stock you want to sell to harvest the losses, you need to replace it with another stock. You want to find something that's substantially similar. And so you can find something, say, in the same sector with, uh, you know, that's highly autocar. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Co-integrated, co-integrated, yeah. And um, so there, there are different things we can do. We can look at the trailing volatility. We can try to tie down as many of the moving parts as possible so that we isolate our trade to bet on exactly what we have an opinion on. Whereas if you're saying, oh, the risk-free rate is changing, so the stock market's going to do something else, there's a lot of intermediate steps and a lot of connections that can fail or stretch uh, that will make that not work quite as well as you thought. So in, in the 1990s, that basis trade, that's a pretty precise mechanical thing. You know, you're shorting a, a five-year uh, future and you're, you're buying a five-year cash bond. They should be the same thing. And you're harvesting that premium. Yes, the, the discrepancy can widen and you've got that risk of the repo rates. But you're kind of, you know, going you know, long uh, you know, apples and short apples, but there's a different types of prices. But a stock of long JP Morgan short Citigroup or something like that, those things, you know, most days when JP Morgan is up 1%, you know, Citi will be up 1.2% or something like that. But, you know, there are days where Citi is down 
15% and JP Morgan's up 2%. So how do you, you I feel like when you wander from the, away from the world of bonds, the correlations, the tails, they can get very uncorrelated on the tails, right? Absolutely. It all depends on your time frame. Uh, a friend of mine, Michael Lipkin, wrote a paper about that, how different people can make money on the same trade going in opposite directions as long as their investment horizon is different. Right. So if you're trading pairs and you're a high frequency trader, you don't even care that they're banking stocks. You just care that they're co-integrated for a very short period of time or, or something like that. Uh, if you're a long term investor, maybe you don't even care about the co-integration. You just care about they're both bank stocks and they're both doing pretty well and they're, you know, they're both too large to fail. Uh, it's the intermediate term where things get mixed up. You know, if you're thinking about a trade that lasts a few days or maybe even a few weeks, then a lot of luck and a lot of randomness can come to play. And uh, I think that's the difference between uh, being successful in these trades and, and what kind of metrics and what kind of rules you use to generate them. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are gonna be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk about uh, VIX products such as you know VXX and ETF that owns the VIX that you, t you talk about uh, owns VIX futures that you, you talk about in in the book and how look if you if you bought just SP 500 and then you bought this thing uh, and you never sold you'd, you'd be down almost 100 percent on those VIX products so you have to do something some sort of rebalancing in order to get some advantage so can you just walk us through the advantage of those negatively correlated products. And then I'm going to sort of raise a, 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 a kind of counterpoint, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of uh, points in what you said. And in general, uh, lack of correlation is, is great for two things, right? And um, so if, if you remember uh, Grinold and Kahn's uh, fundamental law of active management, uh, they say that uh, success in active management is based on a few things. There's how efficient you are, how well you trade, right? What your skill is, and basically your investment universe, what, how many things you have to choose from, and the correlation between those things. Because if the things are the same, it doesn't matter if you have 100 of the same thing, you might as well have one, right? So having uncorrelated uh, assets to choose from lets you apply your skill and choose the ones that are going to go up versus the ones that go down. There's a measure uh, called uh, pairwise correlation that people use, say, on the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. And if the stocks are really correlated to each other, they say, oh, well, this isn't a stock picker's market, right? It doesn't matter how skillful you are, you really can't use that skill. So th that's one source of the correlation, um, a use for the correlation. Another is to diversify your portfolio, which, you know, famously was supposedly said that uh, it's the only free lunch in investing, that everything else requires skill and luck, but diversification can provide benefits uh, just through the mechanics of it. And so that's another really great use for uh, a market with uncorrelated assets. Um, 
Uh, so Michael, so sorry, just on the diversification, instead of owning one stock, you can own 50 stocks or 500 stocks in the S&P 500. But don't you get to a point where to buy an asset that has a very low correlation or even negatively correlated, at some point, you're going to start sacrificing absolute returns, right? Like that absolute returns of, of VIX products are very neg are negative. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another really important point. Uh, is that you've got to design your strategy based on how much skill you have. If you work at a small investment advisor and you can't hire really expensive analysts, then don't try to pick stocks, right? And in that case, uh, a market with, uh, I mean, a large portfolio with really diversified assets is helpful, right? Because you can, you can benefit from that diversification. But if you're a really great stock picker and your value, your skill is in picking stocks. You don't want a diversified portfolio. You want a highly concentrated portfolio of just the stocks that you think are going to go up. So diversification isn't for everybody, but it is for most of us and probably most of your, your listeners and watchers. Um, in terms of the VIX, that's a wholly different thing. Uh, the reason why VIX doesn't work, the, the VXX uh, ETF, is because of the rebalancing that it uses. So a lot of these highly structured products like the CTF try to mimic something else, in this case, uh, the VIX. And it does pretty well between uh, open and close. But at the end of the day, it needs to rebalance. And that rebalancing almost invariably loses money. And so if you hold that asset for more than a day, certainly for a long period of time, you're almost guaranteed to lose money because of the mechanism in the product. And uh, it, I think that's the essence behind that. There's, uh, if you're going to trade something complex, you really need to understand the mechanics. And that came up pretty notably in the AT1 bonds uh, with Credit Suisse uh, last, what was it, a month ago or a month and a half ago. Uh, there was a clause in there that a lot of people didn't bother to read. And they assumed those AT1s were like other AT1s. And they weren't. And uh, it was all right there in the documents. It's all in the structure. And so when you deal in structured assets, you really should pay attention to the details. Often the, the VIX term structure is upward sloping and can tango, meaning you're always going to have to sell something that's cheaper to buy something that's more expensive. So you're always running uphill and that you're, you kind of be ground uh, uh, away. So so why why might it make sense for investors to traffic in these VIX products or VIX futures, I mean, if they're just doing it themselves, it's a similar thing uh, to have that negative correlation. I mean, does does their usage actually enhance returns or uh, in, in some way? Well, it's tricky. Uh, the VIX is a really attractive indicator. And that's why the VXX product is one of the most profitable products, despite its poor returns over long periods of time. Profitable so, for the people who sell it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The management fees, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And in terms of, uh, you know, how many people use it, you know, it's very popular. Uh, so it's a great product. It's just often misused. And people use it because it's, it's difficult to create a product that mimics volatility, right? There are volatility swaps. There are other things you can use, but they're expensive or they're difficult. Uh, it's similar with cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, they're kind of awkward to trade in the underlier, so lots of people want other instruments to use. And then there are huge divergences. 
like the uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust versus the underlier, right? Uh, the carry is crazy. And people want it, though, because it's so much more convenient than the underlier. Uh, the same thing's true with volatility. VIX is a great indicator. It's a great thing to use in your rules and your strategies. Uh, but to actually use volatility as an investable instrument is problematic. The common sense understanding, and you know, you hear it all the time, and I think it is true, is that the academic literature, the data studies do not support stock picking as a way for you know, even half of investors to beat the market, let alone most, most investors, and that, oh, I'm going to go long this stock and long that stock. I've created my basket. I've gone through the 10K, the annual report. I listened to the CEO. I liked what the CEO said. And maybe I'll short a few of these stocks, which are bad because the CEO, I don't like them. That, you know, what, what you can give us the numbers. What is it? 90%, 95% of people fail at that strategy. So are those n- numbers roughly accurate? And by the way, those are professionals. There's not you know, p- people you know, doing it in their the free time. So the idea that people doing it in the free time could consistently beat the market is, is even more difficult. So are those, are those numbers roughly accurate? And then why is that the case? Well, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, there is, there's one caveat to that is there is a bias for professional investors to be long, uh, especially if they're analysts working for big banks. So the, there is that, but it, it is very hard. And so for most people, it doesn't make sense. Now, I, I disagree with people who say nobody can do it. I'm sure there are people who are good at it, just not most people, and certainly not people with a limited amount of time and attention. And uh, what you mentioned, which is very relevant, is a lot of professional stock pickers, very smart, very focused, well-resourced, and spending an inordinate amount of time trying to be successful. So to try to do it passively uh, doesn't seem like a tremendously good idea. Or what you mean is do it actively but not devote a lot of time to it. Passively would just be owning the index. Well, yeah, I didn't mean passive investing in that sense. I meant passively as in not spending 20 hours a day uh, looking at stock statistics and pouring over regulatory filings and things like that. Uh, Yeah, not not that definition. But uh, it's just a very hard thing to do. It's much easier to focus on being efficient, being diversified, things like that. You can pick a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, by doing that. Uh, in fact, uh, a really great writer who works for AQR, uh, Dr. Ilmanen, uh, wrote a few books about that, about how it's important to focus on the easier things to achieve and less so on these hard things like picking stocks. Uh, so unless you happen to be very special, I would advise against it. Okay. And I understand that for institutional investors, and you know that is in the, the title for your, your book, uh, they have needs that you know they can't handle a fifty percent drawdown. So it might make sense for them to allocate to a tail risk fund or to invest in you know very uncorrelated things, stuff like that. But for someone who you know they're thirty years old, they're going to be working for you know at least thirty more years, and you know they're donat you're allocating to their four hundred one k. You know there are going to be peaks and valleys all along the way, uh, but the best way to get the best return is just to invest in you know. SP 500 or a, you know, a diversified global equity market and not to mess around with other types of stuff. Is that fair to say on, an, on a personal level, if, if on a long-term basis, you can handle the drawdowns? Is that, is that fair to say? Well, definitely looking at history and looking at an index like the S&P 500, you're right. 
but when you're talking about individual stocks, then you're less assured of uh, your long-term terminal wealth, right? Then you really have to look at gambling theory, use, say, Kelly sizing, right? And treat it like you're at a blackjack table. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. If you're young and you could afford to gamble and maybe you'll get rich and maybe you'll just start over again and you're okay with that, that's fine. That's perfectly valid. Lots of people have become rich by doing things like that. Uh, but I wouldn't say that just because the S&P 500 has done really well in the past, it'll necessarily do really well in the future or that that applies to individual stock selection. Right. But it, the whole point of indexes is, you know, there are going to be five stocks in the index that are total winners, you know, five stocks that are total losers. And then, you know, the 490 in between are going to be kind of, you know, middle of the pack. And, but those winners are going to get bigger and bigger in the index. And then, you know, so the index will do well over time. And, you know, if you invested in Japan, Japan, the Nikkei in 1991, your returns yeah. would be quite poor and you'd only be, I was gonna bring know, that up. Yeah. you'd only be in the black, you know, as of you know, a few years ago, maybe a few months ago. But uh, yeah, what I'm tr trying to get point is the the Jack Bogle point of just everyone is just doing too much work, not not a not enough work. You know? Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't put it that way. I don't agree with him on on that point in particular. Uh, I think stock picking is very hard, and you should focus on where your work is rewarded, right? And there's a lot of ways to reward work uh, in investing. And avoiding stupid mistakes is a good way. Predicting risk is a lot easier than predicting return. So you could focus on that, on de-risking or putting risk on. You could work on your sizing. You could work on your diversification, on efficient management, tax loss harvesting, things like that. That work is rewarded. Uh, but picking stocks is just so hard that it's not rewarding for most people. But I wouldn't be a nihilist and say that, the less work, the better. Got it. So stock picking, very tough. So yeah, where, where is the work rewarded uh, the best? Let's start with, uh, what did you say that's not tax loss harvesting? Obviously, obviously that's important, but risk management. Like, what, Tell us about how your work can be rewarded there. Well, sure. I mean, it, it's just math that if you lose a lot of money, it's really hard to make it back. It's a lot better not to have lost it in the first place. Uh, an example I bring up pretty frequently is with Brexit, right? That was a pretty big surprise that it turned out the way it did for a lot of people. But the fact that it was a big event was not a surprise. Everybody knew it was going to happen. It was widely publicized. You could see people in the market putting on hedges, volatility changing. And you could have said, I want to de-risk around that event so I don't get hurt. I don't know what's going to happen. That's too hard to predict. But that something might happen, that's not so hard to predict. And so risk management in that sense, controlling your exposures, uh, not being exposed to big events that you know are happening, those things are manageable. And they can make a big difference in your long-term return. Uh, one of the problems, for instance, with Kelly sizing is that you could just go broke and then you can't recover. Tell us, tell us about Kelly sizing. What is that? So it's um, an alternative, well actually it's very much related to uh, diversification, uh, except it's focused on maximizing terminal wealth instead of maximizing risk-adjusted return. So if in your hypothetical where you have a 30-year-old person who wants to be rich and he doesn't really care what happens in the path 
between now and then, he might use something like Kelly sizing to say, I want to maximize my terminal wealth. I don't care if I make a million dollars and lose it the next day. And as long as I have $10 million when I retire, right? That is one way of investing, but there is a very real risk of losing all your money at some point and never recovering, right? Statistically, yeah. you'll be better off, but in reality, you might be broke. The idea behind diversification and optimization uh, for your portfolio is to avoid that very actively and to say, even if I need money tomorrow, it'll be there. Not even waiting till I retire, just to assure that I won't be broke. So it's a very different way of investing. And a lot of people uh, like this uh, hypothetical 30-year-old may think they have a certain risk tolerance until they lose everything. And then suddenly they're not as risk seeking as they thought. It happens all the time. Uh, and that's really why experience is important because some people don't know how to react until they actually live through it. Just thinking about it and talking about it isn't enough. Yeah. So if you, I think what you referenced, I think the name is, is a variance drag where if you lose uh you know 10% of your portfolio you have to make 11% to gain it back or you know a little bit over 11% to gain it back right. and that is certainly mathematically true but tell us about in you know there's a a bell curve distribution of uh, 1% return 1% drawdown 2% return 2% drawdown and that assumes that a 3% uh return is as likely as a 3% drawdown thinking oh if you if you if you if you're down 10% you have to make 11% to get it back. But what if an 11% return is just as likely as a 10% drawdown and actually the bell curve should be in price, not in percentage return, just because things go up over time? It's a great point. And you're absolutely right in that, that at least historically, stock market returns are skewed upward and you have a drift, right? And so if you're investing in, in that way, you do have a bias towards higher positive returns and lower negative returns. Uh, but one thing I disagree with is the bell curve concept, right? Uh, returns do have really long tails and those tails can eat into your risk capital to the point where you're locked in and you don't have anything to invest anymore. You need that money to pay the rent, right? So, uh, if you're only pay playing with capital that you can afford to lose, yeah, maybe you can assume a bell curve and you know survive a long tail. Uh, and if you're only investing in, say, the stock market in the United States, which has been trending up for the most part, uh, you can assume that the higher returns are more uh, more common than negative returns. But I don't know that that's a good long-term assumption. You mentioned Japan. Uh, you we had a lost decade ourselves, which uh, for some people may have seemed like an eternity. Uh, if you're near retirement, uh, 10 years of sideways or negative movement could really hurt your quality of living. So it really, uh, those assumptions depend on who you are and what markets you're investing in. Yeah, thanks. So what are some other common mistakes investors make, whether they're individual investors or institutional investors that you, that you think, you know, uh, AI and machine learning and quantitative analysis can can help improve? Well, I think that the systemization of it helps people in a number of ways. Uh, one is to avoid those biases, which we all have. And what's really funny about the biases is you can know you have it and still not 
avoid it. Uh, there's been experiments. It, it's embarrassing how persistent they are. Um, another thing is to actually know what you're doing precisely. I talk to many professional investors who have a great idea and it sounds great and they invest in it because they believe in it. But if you actually do a study, even a simple study like a regression, you can prove them wrong. You could say, no, you're, it sounds great. It sounds like you're right, but you're not right. You're just not right. And they don't. And, and wouldn't my example be that of the rising interest rates and future cash flows that I referenced earlier? There could be that. Uh, and there's a, a really good mechanism for that. Uh, it could be something uh, less mechanistic, like balancing growth and value, right? And you know, a lot of people want to say, if, you know, if value outperforms in this month or this quarter, then we'll sell some value and buy some uh, some growth, right? And we'll we'll keep a uh, a diversified portfolio of value and growth, or, or some concept like that. It may sound really great, but then you go and you do a back test, you do a study, and you say, well, yeah, but it just sounds great. It isn't, right? So to actually research your strategies and know what really has worked uh, is helpful. It's really Why does it sound great and it's not great? When you do the back test, what do you find for that value growth rebalance? Well, I, I did a back test for that a few years ago, and in the particular way we were doing that, and I don't mean it'll necessarily be true, for all versions of this trade, it, it just didn't make money. It just, uh, there was a lot of momentum in momentum trades where if it was going up, you'd leave money on the table if you rotated back into value, right? With value, uh, there was a period where it just didn't perform very well for a long period and putting money, shoveling money into a strategy that continues to not work is not a good thing. Um, so it's it's time dependent. Uh, it depends on the regime you're in. It depends on your precise strategy, and that's also a real benefit to systematic methods because it forces you to question exactly what you mean, right? It's easy to say, well, I want to balance growth and value, but then when you go and try to do a study, you've got to decide, well, what? When do you want to rebalance? Do you want to rebalance every quarter, every year? Do you want to rebalance if there's a really strong trend? Like if there's a really strong trend, or aren't people going to tell you, well, hold on a little longer, right? How do you define growth and value, right? Do you use a ranking where you buy the top five and sell the, the low five, or do you just buy ones that have good scores, right? When you pin down all these things, then you really refine your thought process and you come up with a much better idea. But if you don't use quantitative investing, if you're just thoughtful, then maybe you don't. Maybe the best investors do, but a lot of investors don't really think it through so thoroughly. And that's a big failing that they could overcome by just being a little quantitative about it. Yeah. And I guess if I'm understanding you right, um, so the thing is, oh, when growth has gone up, we'll sell some growth and we'll buy value to always be balanced. But if, let's say on an index from one to a hundred, when the index is at a hundred, growth is ridiculously expensive relative to value. And when is that one growth is you know relatively cheap uh, to to value if the index is at 70 you'd say oh i'm going to sell some growth to to buy some value or, or something like that but the index could go to 71 it could go to 72 it could go to 78 88 98 99 100 there's nothing just because 50 is balanced or there's nothing that says that it can't continue to increase and uh i mean that, that's really interesting and so you know could further elaborate on that or uh what other sort of sacred cows can we can we slay 
of, of investing? If, if one of those sacred cows is, oh, I'm going to rebalance my growth and value, what's another? Yeah, so uh, in terms of growth value and other things, uh, when you see that growth may be trending in certain periods and not mean reverting, if you're quantitative, you can try to ask, well, why is that true? What periods does that happen in? And should maybe we do uh, quality growth? Right. Or is, is there some way we can adapt our strategy incrementally so that it works when it wouldn't work in in the grosser manner? Right. And I think it's true for almost every strategy. Uh, obviously, I have my own biases towards quant investing. But for me, if I can't verbalize something in a quantitative way, then I really don't understand what I'm talking about. And it helps a lot to just examine my thoughts and say, what did I really mean by that? And that's true of, of any kind of balancing. Um, you know, it's, it's especially true of, say, ESG investing, uh, but it's also true about inflation protection or, um, you know, dividend investing. All those things, they work sometimes, they don't work other times. It's just a fact that people used to accept and now have the tools to investigate and at least know when to stay out of it, right? You might not be able to find the solution to how to make it work when it doesn't work, but you may be able to identify those periods or those investments where it's not appropriate and just step out of the way for that period. Um, or with AI, you can create a meta model, a model that picks which strategies to use and when, kind of like an asset allocator picks hedge fund managers, right? And it can identify using different uh, indicators like the VIX when some strategies perform and when they, when they underperform. Maybe it's in rising markets. Maybe it's in rising economies. You know, maybe sector rotation strategies work when the economy is growing and not in recession or vice versa, right? And by being really precise in your thoughts, by putting numbers on them, or at least rankings, it helps you refine your thought process, and I think it helps you be a better investor. So you know, one sacred cow in particular is not only that higher interest rates, so an increase in, in bond yields, are not good for stocks, but that they're worse for growth stocks than they are for value stocks because growth stocks are of a longer duration. You know, Tesla, all the money that Tesla's going to make or Apple is going to is, is far in the future, whereas like a, a coal stock that has a price to earnings ratio of four you know, a lot of the money it's ever going to make in its lifetime is this year, or 2024. So therefore, a rise in the discount rate hurts growth stocks more than it does value stocks, cheaper stocks. That narrative, it makes such intuitive sense. And, you know, on a one-year time basis, three-year time basis, I mean, you could always, you know, especially anecdotally say, oh, well, uh, bond yields exploded higher today. So no, no surprise the NASDAQ uh, is down 3%. But uh, on a long-term basis, using the rigorous quantitative tools we've been discussing here, how much truth, if at all, is there to that? Fundamentally, theoretically, if you believe in the dividend discount model, then the interest rates will affect the discount rate. And if you have a higher duration on a stock, then you know certainly it will affect it more. Uh, whether or not that narrative is true, that growth stocks are growing because people expect long-term growth, or if it's just like a meme stock that has a high momentum, you know, that, that's a question. Uh, also, uh, the very simple rules that people like to talk about and hang on to because they're easy to verbalize, uh, like the yield curve slope, you know, that 
certainly is affected by rates, but whether it has an effect on us today or whether this market is going to pay attention to it, uh, you know, that's a whole different story. And identifying when that might work and when it's kind of out of whack and not really uh, tied to the mechanisms in the market at this current point, uh, that's a useful tool for study rather than just saying, well, nine times out of 10, it worked or 10 times out of 10, it worked. Well, that's only 10 observations. That's not enough to really bet a lot of money, not for me. Um, and it could be spurious too, right? If you only have 10 observations, it's hard to say that it's significant. If you have a thousand observations and it worked 51% of the time, that might be enough, but 100% of 10 observations might not be. So even the track record of 10 out of 10, it's, it's not, you know, 10 out of 14, it's 10 out of 10. That's, I mean, obviously, obviously it, it could be better. We, we don't know what the yield curve was like in, uh, you know, Mesopotamia, but <laughs> uh, yeah, explain just how that it could be random evidence. Cause for me, you know, if, if I see someone flip, a, if you flip a coin and 10 out of 10 times it's heads, I'm thinking, Hmm, like, well, either there's a, you know, one, over two to the 10th power, whatever that is, 512, I don't, I don't know, um, that, that's a coin, but it, he, the coin might have two heads, you know, May, maybe, I mean, at some point you're approaching the probability that some, something strange is going on here and there could be a relationship. So how do you know, I mean, we, I guess the answer is we don't know, but how, in what way are you sort of not convinced by 10 out of 10? And let me, let me pull up the Fred, I mean, cause it's like, we could put the chart up of the 210 spread uh, and there are many different types of the curve that can be inverted. Yeah. But, um, you know, now it's close to a hundred basis points. Uh, the 10 year is, uh, two years higher than the 10 year. And, you know, it typically goes like, you know, a few years, months before, uh, a recession, which, you know, is, is, is in a shaded bar. So one, two, three, four, five, six, six out of six. Okay. Six out of six That's is not it. nearly as good as 10 out of 10. Um, <laughs> and I'll say I, the data doesn't go back that far, but if you look, you know, in the 1800s, the yield curve was very frequently inverted. And I mean, you had a lot of recessions, but it was, it was inverted all the time when you had booms too. So it's, there are mechanical reasons, but uh, you know, it seems, it seems convincing. I'm not, I'm not saying people should like, you know, devote their entire strategy to it, but uh, if, if it is random, it's, it's pretty odd that it's this, right? Well, I don't think it's random. The, the question is whether it applies to our current situation and whether your timing's right. Right. Timing is very important. And uh, as a lot of people saw in, say, the 2001 tech crisis, a lot of people knew it was going to happen, but they didn't time it right and they lost a lot of money. Uh, and Absolutely. Of and also the people, when the yield curve inverted about a year ago, people said recession imminent right now. Buy yeah. bonds, sell stocks, short stocks, buy bonds. That has worked out horribly. So being early is the same thing as being wrong. You are absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and in terms of the mechanism that causes the yield curve to slow the economy, there's a lot of steps in between. And yeah, it affects the discount rate, but the discount rate is not a, a mechanism that's enforced, right? Um, but if there's a lot of liquidity in the market, right, if you know, companies or their products are selling, right, all these things boost the value of stocks just because it might be more expensive to borrow doesn't mean that stocks are going to go down. And if they are, it might take a while, right? If sales are robust, maybe you can survive without really low financing for a while, right? Maybe your spreads are enough so you can survive indefinitely, 
There was an article uh, recently about, I think, J.P. Morgan, where it, it said, yeah, they're kind of in that trap that banks are in where they invest in long-term bonds uh, and they get their money from short-term deposits, but they're still earning a positive spread. So, yeah, th their earnings are lower, but they have no risk of going out of business and there's no reason why they, they shouldn't stop making money. So, yeah, so, uh, JP Morgan actually is in a relatively, uh, you know, catbird seat, whatever you want to put it in. They, they actually like hedged a lot of that risk out. And, you know, unlike Bank of America, who has over $100 billion of unrealized losses of the securities, uh, they didn't, didn't buy a, a lot relatively. They did not buy a lot of long term bonds. But, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and that's also another good example of uh, why things might apply, not apply. Um, the, the traditional way of looking at banks is that deposits are really sticky. And obviously, that's not always true, you know, because of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and, and several others, right? So the idea that those, uh, that supply of money will persist uh, was an assumption that was made and a reason why you might think the yield curve might affect banks in a certain way, which proved not to be precisely true, right? So the yield curve is a gross indicator. It, it's not really very precise. It doesn't directly address the true mechanisms that make prices go up and down. And it may have a lagged effect. Um, it, it may have an effect that doesn't see its way into higher or lower prices directly. And so that's why these, these simple things, they're really attractive, they're easy to talk about, you know, they, they make good headlines, but they're not always the best bets, even if they happen six out of six times before. What are indicators that, you know, in your quantitative opinion, have a very good track record and, uh, you know, a, a low error rate, a high uh, fidelity, a, a high fidelity signal? Well, so we focus mostly on the things that don't rely on signals uh, like diversification. Uh, there are some signals that are stronger than others, but what's really important is to understand when those signals work and when they don't and to be really thoughtful about it. And that's where value has its advantage because it's a really thoughtful theory, right? And there is some mechanism tying book value to you know, how much people should pay for a company. Uh, in things other than stocks, like uh, bankruptcy cases, those mechanisms are a lot more sure. And, and, and a big part of what I write about in the book is that the world is a lot bigger than large cap stocks. Right? There are many different things you can invest in, things that have much surer signals and much surer mechanisms that uh, you can rely on at least more than uh, a sentiment driving the price up or down. Uh, so, Like what? Well, uh, like um, a distressed debt, right, or mergers and acquisitions, right? These are things that have much more defined bets. There's risk in them for sure, but there are mechanisms as well, uh, whereas the stock market is much more diver divorced from the drivers. It's a lot harder to yeah. say, well, for every basis point, interest rates go up, stock prices are going to go down by this beta. It's just not true, and um, it's a lot fuzzier. Now, what's really interesting lately is uh, this branch of AI called causal AI, and that seeks to really tighten up these mechanisms. So the idea behind causal AI is to eliminate the idea of tendency that's behind statistics. So we all know when you draw a regression, 
there's no real reason why that regression should hold. Just because the dots produced a line, there's no reason why the next dot shouldn't be way off that line. Correlation but, is not causation. Exactly. But uh, there is a theory of causation where you can actually define those things and develop a mechanism that has a causal effect. And what's really great about that theory is that it can also tell you when things aren't working the way it thought and say, well, we had a cause of model, causal model, and we could rely on it, but we can't rely on it any longer because our theory has been violated. So uh, an example of how that works lately in the current state of the theory is you can create what's called a graph, which is just a bunch of arrows between events and other events. And the arrows are the mechanisms between those events. And currently, unless I missed some recent research, uh, it only works if you can uh, draw the graphs so that the arrows go in a single direction and don't loop back on themselves. So the technical term for that is a directed acyclic graph. The arrows have a direction and they can't create a cycle. Now there's no reason why in the future the theory can't expand to adjust for those things, but right now there's the limitations. But if you can draw one of those graphs and you can create a mechanism, then you can have a real thesis behind your trade that's not just it happens six out of six times, but that we have a whole reason to believe this is going to happen consistently as long as this graph is true. And we're gonna constantly test to make sure that this graph isn't violated and these arrows don't go in a different way. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Yeah, as I can tell, as I can tell, you're, you're clearly a very smart person and have done a lot of work on this. But can you, in a simple way, tell us why you know or have a high degree of confidence that this is cause not correlation uh, in this in this in the state way where you wouldn't have confidence in the yield curve indicator, and can you do it in a way that's not you know the computer told me it was a good idea? Yeah, yeah. There's it's a really fascinating theory uh, called uh, do logic, do logic, and the idea is you can create these experiments to test your theory to prove to yourself that it's true mathematically, right? And you create what's called interventions. And you don't have to rely on what's called natural experiments, which is seeing things happen in the market and saying this confirms or disconfirms my theory because it, it happened. And it just adds a little more information than I had before. With causal theories, you can test your theories and prove that they're true so long as your map is right. So it, it's a whole fascinating branch of science. And there are companies that are using this to invest. 
But how? In other words, so you say it's not. You don't have to test it in the real world. You can test it in the model. But how do you know that the model is is accurate? Well, that that's what those tests are for. That's what those inventions do. They test to make sure the model is accurate. They prove that the model actually works. Now, of course, you've got to design your tests properly. You know, you you can't just uh, be you know thoughtless about it. But there's a whole science behind testing these models and mathematically proving that they're consistent right? and also monitoring them to make sure they continue to be consistent. Right? So for instance, maybe the two tens curve might be one of the arrows in your global economic model. And that two tens curve could flash recession. But the other branches in your model might indicate, no, it's not a recession. They contraindicate that branch. And the causal map could say, well, ignore the two tens curve for now because we're getting other confirmation from other branches to prove that the market is not going to go into recession imminently. How do you, how do quantitative measures think about liquidity? I mean, there are some models that are you know, somewhat simplified that, oh, liquidity goes up when the Fed's balance sheets goes up. It goes down when the Treasury General account goes up or when uh, the reverse repo facility goes up. And it's kind of that tripartite analysis. It's, it's obviously a lot more complicated. But what quantitative successes have there been to sort of track liquidity, not just track liquidity and measure it, but track the correlation between, oh, liquidity is actually going up, so risk assets should go up. Um, and that, you know, I know there are you know, people who post, my liquidity model is actually very correlated with the S&P 500. But there are you know, a lot of challenges that you know, you know that quantitative uh, folks can, can find of actually saying, is this kind of uh, you know overfitting, like autocorrelation, stuff like that. So it's told me about the quantitative efforts to to kind of measure and measure liquidity and see how impactful is it in predicting where the market's going. Yeah, liquidity is kind of oxymoronic in that uh, there's a lot of really good quantitative measures, you know, like looking at options and things like that, but at the end, it really is highly manipulated, right? Uh, you can remember quantitative easing and, you know, the Fed could be raising rates and injecting liquidity. You know, it, it's, it's really manipulated. What's more useful for my investing uh, to go back to kind of the blocking and tackling where we focus is how liquidity affects your actual investments. So um, where it really affects investments is when you're shorting, right? Uh, if you have an arrangement where uh, you can get your shorts pulled, then you might lose your most profitable shorts. And by profitable, I mean the ones that will go down uh, because they'll get pulled from you and you'll no longer be short them. And that's happened to me frequently in real life. And I've actually had to build into my back tests that if my shorts are too good, they have to get stopped out because somebody else will stop me out you know, or the borrow will be 600% a year. Yeah, right. Uh, but even so, you, you may not be allowed to. Uh, even when you do, say, total return swaps, a lot of times when I short, I short through total return swaps. But even then, the bank can pull the swaps, pull the, the underlier. Um, it also happens. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Michael. And often, you know, if someone who doesn't have a position in a particular thing, this stock, they do a little fundamental analysis, this stock is so overvalued, it's going down, it's a short. They're right, and if you could short it for free, it would be an easy trade all day. But the bank's going to charge you, you know, five hundred percent to short it. And if you want to buy a put option, it's you know an implied volatility of you know many hundreds of, of all points. So it's like it's, the market knows that 
it's an easy short. And that's why it's hard to short. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the problem also, if you're too right and the company gets delisted, then what do you do about your short? <laughs> so yeah, that's a good point. There, there's a lot of things about shorting and liquidity in general uh, that are really interesting. And you can certainly try to predict them on shorter time spans that are relevant to your investments. Uh, but over longer time spans, just like the two cents curve, uh, it really has a lot to do with the Fed and what the mark, what happens, uh, you know, on a political level. Uh, you know, factor investing—that—that's in the title. We haven't really talked about that. You know, quickly, what is a factor? And then uh, we talked a lot about value. What are the other ones? Momentum, uh, quality. What what ones are we missing? Well, yeah, there are uh, the, the five most common factors. But a, a lot of what I talk about in the book is that there are lots of factors, and people often talk about it derogatorily, uh, talking about the, the factor zoo, or uh, I think the original term was zoo of factors. And um, their, their point is that they might not be persistent or universal, but from my, my purpose of trading and making money, it doesn't matter if a factor persists for a microsecond as long as you can make money off of that. And so I try to emphasize factors that are a little more esoteric, uh, that are um, that have a little more juice in them, right? When, when you talk about something like quality and growth and uh, momentum and things like that, everybody's watching it. Everybody's your competitor, including people who are a lot smarter and faster than you. And that really draws your skill away into the luck region. Whereas if you can identify a really specific factor, then you can take advantage of it and maybe you won't have so much competition. Uh, so you may remember the uh, So's Bandit arbitrages back in the 90s, right, where uh, there was uh, usually one market maker for the NASDAQ level two, which had a big market, and for the small, small order execution system, which had a small market. So when the market maker got nervous and they wanted to change their price, they change it in the NASDAQ system, and then they change it in the SO system. There's a little delay. And so there were some smaller traders who glued themselves to the screen, watched the NASDAQ screen, and as soon as a bid pulled, they hit the bid on the SO screen, right? And they took advantage of that small time difference and arbitraged it away, right? And these esoteric factors are like that too. How is that a factor? I thought a factor was something. Explain what a factor is. Well, to me, a factor is anything that can abstract away from the actual assets, right? So, uh, so some people even think of asset classes as factors. Uh, I, I think that's a little too close to the actual investable assets. But if you want to think about even like large cap equities, that could be a factor. You could predict large cap equities without specifically predicting any particular stock or any particular index, right? So if you can abstract that, then you can lower the uh, the noise in the signal by focusing on the mechanism, right? So what makes large cap stocks go up relative to small cap stocks or quality stocks relative to growth stocks? In the abstract sense, what makes those factors work? Then if you can focus on that and predict that, then you can work on the second stage of figuring out which assets that fall in that category are the ones to buy and sell. But it's, I think, too complicated to try to predict the actual assets without removing that noise away and treating them as factors.
Does that make sense? Yes, I just don't know how an, an arbitrage where something's you know a few basis points cheaper on one exchange versus another. I don't really understand how that's a factor. Well, no, that was just uh, an example of uh, focusing got on it, got it. So, specific. what are the what are, what are some yeah. more you know the, on the road less traveled? What are some factors that are not the mainstream momentum value that stuff like that? Well, yeah, there, there's lots of uh, research papers describing hundreds and hundreds of factors, and a- any little anomaly might be considered a factor. Any dislocation from the yield curve or from uh, you know, a quality sentiment, uh, anything you could think of that's maybe an abstract thing can be considered a factor and used to make predictions that are not subject to the, uh, the high frequency noise of the underlying assets. Um, so for instance, in terms of the yield curve, uh, you might use uh, a yield curve smoothing technique Right, and you can might predict, you might predict the yield curve in the absence of supply and demand for individual issuances, right? And you could say, well, the the fives tens curve should have this certain slope based on my economic model, but uh, the fives or the tens are rich or cheap compared to other current issues that are off the curve or on the curve, and you can move those those different valuations based on the specific assets and take that yield curve abstraction, that signal of twos, tens or fives, tens, and then modify it to come up with a valuation for individual bonds. And then say, should I buy or sell those individual bonds based on my twos, tens factor? So for instance, your twos, tens might be rich or cheap. It might say you should buy the curve or sell the curve. But then when you go to say, should I buy the two year note or the 10-year note, it might say, no, don't do either one of those things. Those are so rich or cheap to the curve, you should buy something off the run, right? So predicting the twos, tens abstractly, not the actual issuance, might be a factor. Predicting whether to buy or sell the two-year note or five-year note or 10-year note is something entirely different. Uh, Michael, I want to now ask you, what is new in the field of AI investing. You know, the non-investing world is replete with, oh my God, just take half a photo. The AI will fill the rest of it. You know, AI is going to change the world. You know, everyone's familiar with that. But in the world of investing, what's you know, new now, the new stuff that's really on the cutting edge that even five years ago wasn't coming around the, the pike? And then I want to ask you, what's the end game? If for in the non-investing world, you know, Artificial intelligence can do everything. It can make all these decisions, and it will free up, you know, so much, you know, human time and stuff like that. You know, that that's great, uh, you know, provided we can avoid some of the you know nastier social societal consequences. But in the world of investing, you know, the goal is to to beat the market. But what if you know if you develop this perfect computer that you know gets fifty percent a year with extremely low volatility, then other people start using the computer, and no one, not everyone, can beat the market. Because everyone is is the market, you know. What, you know what I'm saying. So, what's kind of the end game if you have this kind of a, you know, machine versus machine uh, end game where you know this genius computer beats the market, but then if everyone uses that computer, it, it stops working. Yeah. So you brought up a few really interesting points, and uh, I think one of the things that's changed recently uh, over the past ten years is not so much the sophistication of the algorithms, but the access to them. Right, so tools like MATLAB and Python that are free or not very expensive are accessible to everyone. 
and they can use these really sophisticated techniques. And uh, most recently with uh, large language models, they've been really popular in the media and they're certainly really accessible by people who don't even know how to program. So I think that's the, the most recent big change. Um, in terms of computer versus computer, well, first of all, people using computers versus computers is really a question of, uh, you know, are you just making bad decisions more frequently, right, and easier, right? So that's something you need to avoid. People can be very successful in partnering with computers to make good decisions, but more likely than not, most people are going to use computers to make a lot more bad decisions because they're easier to make in a confusing way. But in terms of computers fighting computers, uh, I had a short career in uh, electronic intelligence, in electronic warfare, and it reminds me a lot of that. It also reminds me a lot of high-frequency trading, where people are basically just trying to be faster than each other, and they're doing all these crazy things to be as unbelievably fast as possible, cutting down forests so they can have a direct microwave beam and you know things like that. Uh, and so I, I think the, the lesson to learn from high-frequency trading in this regard is that it really transformed the business of trading from being predictive to building a business that's efficient and requires capital expenditures, right? High-frequency trading is a lot about having the fastest technology and making the fastest decisions and you know, putting enough money in that technology so you're not behind the curve and your competitors don't have better technology. Uh, at least when it first started, high-frequency trading had very little to do with good decisions. It had everything to do with finding uh, an opportunity that would only last a microsecond or less and just arbitraging it, you know, buying gold on one, one part of the world and selling it in another part of the world, right? The exact same asset. And um, so I think technology won't be quite like that with AI because it is very differentiated. There's lots of different models and lots of different ways to tune them and feed them different information. So that will certainly be part of it. And there will be a lot of moving parts. You could have a better algorithm. You could have a better algorithm trainer. Uh, a lot of people are talking about prompt engineering, uh, how to use models. I've for a long time thought that one of the really important careers in the future is not to be the guy who makes the prompt, but to the guy, be the guy who trains the model, who feeds it the data and builds it, its network internally by exposing it to the right information in the right way. And right now, that's the biggest problem with these large language models is that they have a bunch of nonsense fed to it as information, right? They have like the whole internet full of misinformation and they sometimes respond in ways, not only don't they make sense because they're their logic doesn't force them to make sense, but also because they were trained on some data that might not be accurate. So to feed it correct data in maybe a, a closed source model, but also to train it to come up with the proper conclusions has a big part to do with how these models will be able to fight themselves in the future, to fight each other uh, and to come up with trades and to beat each other. There'll also be uh, misinformation and spoofing, like you said, in markets, right? And there'll be, uh, as you see in some more legal markets uh, like distressed debt, there'll be ways to try to get around uh, regulations. 
uh, and to provide misinformation without running afoul of the law and uh, things like that. So things I think will get really interesting and complicated and fast. And what can be done now about it is now people can outsmart machines for the most part, I think. Uh, there's a lot of things that machines are really good at and you wanna get out of the way of that. You don't wanna do high frequency trading with your mouse, but there are also things that computers are still not very good at that you can identify their weaknesses and expose them to. But they'll also gradually go away. I think I read a week or two ago that uh, a person beat a machine playing the game of Go, you know, that little game with the rocks. Um, but they did it by asking another computer what that algorithm's weaknesses were. So he used mm. a computer to find the weaknesses of another computer. He didn't beat it just by outthinking it. Right? So it'll be a, a complicated cat and mouse game. It'll be really interesting in the future. Uh, and I don't know at what point we reach that singularity where human input just won't have that much advantage. But we're not there yet. There's still a lot we can do ourselves. Right, but no matter what, you still have that dynamic where the market has a beta of one, the market's return is the market's return. There are folks who outperform that, you know, net of fees. There are people who underperform that net of fees. And the people who outperform, you know, benefit at the expense of people who underperform, you know, in a, it's kind of a, a zero sum game. And that's true now when it's, you know, human investors and traders. But, you know, if we, if there's a future where 95, 99% of all trading is computers, that will still be the case, right? Just compositionally. Well, so to kind of deconstruct that, that sentence, um, you're talking about averages, first of all, right? So yeah, the average investor will not beat the market, but I'm sure there are quite a few exceptional investors who may not beat it consistently year in and year out, but on average beat the market, right? So there are some people with skill and we, we don't want to discount that. Uh, another thing is the market it is not necessarily a monolithic thing. So for my first 15 years, I was a proprietary trader and the people I worked with made money every year. They were really good at trading, right? They weren't trying to beat the S&P 500. They were doing say a basis arbitrage or, or something like that. They, everybody had their own trade specialty, but you can consistently beat a market, maybe not the large cap stock market, right? So that much is true right now. And I think it will be true in the future for things that are sufficiently good at what they're doing. It just might be that the, uh, the time decay on those trades might be very, very fast. And computers may do a basis trade for this microsecond and do another pairs trade for another microsecond and do an oil gold arbitrage for another one, right? And computers might just be doing these things so quickly we can't keep up. Yes. Well, uh, people should check out the book, Quantitative Asset Management, Factor Investing and Machine Learning for Institutional Investing. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for, for joining us. Tell us a little bit about, about your firm, uh, Larson Financial. Do, are you a quantitative investment firm? How do you, everything we've been talking about, how do you use that in, in your business? Yeah, so we're, we're uh, an investment advisory. So we're a low frequency firm that uh, provides uh, different portfolios for different clients based on their risk tolerances and their preferences. And we do use quantitative methods to design those portfolios and to engineer them so that they're as efficient as possible so we can maybe beat 
other portfolios are less efficient uh, by trading it with the proper frequency, rebalancing with the proper frequency. And we also use uh, quantitative methods in defining our capital markets assumptions, which lead us to choose where to tilt our portfolios, whether to have more stocks or more bonds or more Africa or less Europe and things like that. Uh, and importantly, uh, I teach at Columbia, and we use a lot of Columbia students uh, to help us with that research. And they're really smart people doing really good work at the cutting edge of quantitative investing. Michael, thanks so much for, for joining us and breaking uh, all this quantitative investing down. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.